Hello and welcome. Thank you for choosing the Final Draft podcast. My name's Andrew Popel. Today on the show, I'm going to be welcoming Amy Lovett, author of Mistakes and Other Lovers. Now, the Final Draft podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. Each week, Final Draft broadcasts from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. At Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to the classics, the authors that you've known and loved for a long time. Each of these conversations is a way to look at the issues that drive the author's storytelling to help you discover more from the books you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. Now, at 2SER, we broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people. I record on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people, although in this show today, I am actually recording on the lands of the Gadigal people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands. I want to pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging these are unceded lands. The treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now, as I mentioned, I am going to be speaking today with Amy Lovett. She is the author of Mistakes and Other Lovers, as well as the host of the Secret Book Book Stuff podcast. Love having another book broadcaster on with me. And this is a very special conversation because Amy joined me in the studio. I I headed in to the 2SER studios, so the audio quality will probably sound a little bit different because we are face-to-face. I hope it also shows in the enthusiasm and just the general warmth because it is so great to sit in a room and talk books with someone. You are on the Final Draft podcast and Amy Lovett is going to join us in just a short moment. Amy, I can practically reach across the table and shake your hand. It's so great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's nice to be in a studio and not at home with my barking dog in the background. It's Well, me too. We were talking <laughs> off air. I have not been properly in the studio for a very long time. So thank you for indulging me. Not at all. It's, it's my pleasure. Amy is a writer, a curator, a researcher. She hosts the Secret Book Stuff, Secret Book Stuff podcast alongside Laura Kebby. And today she's joining me with her debut novel. It is called Mistakes and Other Lovers. It's so exciting to be talking about Mistakes and Other Lovers. I would like to introduce our listeners to Elle. Because Elle has some questions she'd like answers to. Like, why did she implode her old life? <laughs> is this new life necessarily better or just different? And is it mace or kick or both that she really loves? They're questions for herself, but that doesn't mean the answers are necessarily forthcoming. As Elle's life careers further from her control, she knows something has to give. But does that something move her forward or take her back to where she came from? I really want to get into this, Amy, but before we get started, I'm going to let people know our conversation could take a turn... um, I think there might be topics around perhaps substance use, perhaps around uh, sex and um, sexual activity that, you know, if people don't want to listen to that, turn the radio down, don't tune out, stay on 2SER, but I just thought I'd let people know. Fair enough. Now let's get into it. And I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about Elle. Despite being our first person narrator, or perhaps because of it, she is deeply elusive, at times seeming like socially estranged, yet always finding herself in the middle of things, always really down on herself, yet subject to the gaze and the jealousy of her newfound friends. Like, who is this enigma? I know. She's so interesting, isn't she? By the way, great summary of the book that oh, you just you. introduced. I couldn't have said it better myself. I'm really glad you didn't ask me for my elevator pitch because uh, 11 years later, I'm still perfecting it. <laughs> I've, asked, I've asked a bunch of authors for their elevator pitches mm. and... People find it difficult. I think it's something about like, it's like, hey, 
live in the world, but now also tell me the world in 15 words or less. It's much better when someone does it for you. So I really appreciate that. It's so illuminating of, of how they've read the book as well, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I love mm. it. Um, but back to Elle, she is so fascinating to me. And I think that her constant questioning and kind of living inside her own head and having trouble participating in the world and mm. like really feeling into the world is a product of where she's at in her life for mm. sure. You know, I think she's kind of reached this precipice of looking at the life that she's living and wondering if this is actually what she really wants. You know, I feel like she's kind of had her eyes squeezed shut a little bit through that adolescence and early adulthood. And then she's just reached a point where she's, you know, the catalyst is meeting someone who intrigues her and who she maybe has a bit of a crush on and who is showing, you know, romantic interest in her um, being Mace. And then that is enough to kind of throw her off kilter and being in that early 20s period when you are navigating that messy, messy space between adolescence and adulthood where you're sort of starting to live independently, like she's moved out of home, she's financially independent in that she works in a cafe, but she's also kind of, you know, wondering what to do next. She's still getting a lot of pressure from her parents and from institutions in her life and wondering whether to, you know, quit uni or keep going. And um, yeah, I think that that yeah, that nebulous space is is kind of lending itself to her feeling a bit on the outer, mm. you know, and, and that comparisonitis that we all fall into at all stages of our life. But I think it's particularly ripe for Elle at that stage where she's kind of seeing her best friend who's in this really happy relationship and seems to know what she wants. She's about to finish uni. She's got an internship. She knows what she wants to do. And Elle is so jealous of that. Mm. But then, as you mentioned, she doesn't realize until later that other people are kind of jealous of her situation, her so-called freedom, her bravery to walk away from things that she knows. And, yeah, that's one of her big realisations, I suppose, in the end. It's this strange, like, it's so hard to meet her on her terms mm. because we periodically see her through other people's eyes. Like, there are these moments where, and I'm like, I'm not... I'm not super uh, – something I want to interrogate later and I'm not going to advocate around this idea of necessarily commenting on it, people's appearances, but when people sort of talk about her and reflect her back to herself, we get this sense of, you know, you've got something going on here, but we don't feel that coming through her, her telling her own story. She's almost like imposter syndrome personified. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting observation because – she doesn't think very highly of herself mm. in this the present day world of this narrative. And I think that, yeah, I just think that that is so um, normal for a lot of people in that, in that stage as well to start feeling like once you've shaken up some shit, like once mm. you've really made decisions that disrupt the narrative of your life as you know it, you can question yourself. You know, you mm. can go from really high highs to really low lows. You know, you're like, wow, I'm so free. It's like, you know, when you go through a breakup, you can feel simultaneously free and excited for what's next, but mm. then also on other days, hiding under the covers and not knowing who you are and what you're doing. And she's not being treated very nicely by a lot of people in her life at this stage. And mm. I think she starts to really take that on in a way that shocks even her. You know, she reflects back on who she used to be and the confidence she used to feel and that she just doesn't feel anymore. She feels like she can't participate in these new circles of friends fully because 
she doesn't belong, but she also recognises that maybe they have their own insecurities as well. So she's astute, but she's still stuck in that kind of grey, dark space. Mm. All right. I think we we can feel like we can walk hand in hand with Elle right now. So I want to start, I actually want to go really big to start off with. Mm-hmm. So Elle's left her fiancé. She's estranged from her family. She has added a few extra sides to the traditional love triangle. <laughs> but what I what I kept asking myself, you know, mistakes and other lovers, are these mistakes? Like, what did you have an idea of mistakes, or were you hoping to interrogate the idea of a traditional life narrative in mistakes mm. and other lovers? Mm-hmm. Definitely the latter. Mm. So this is a really tough question to answer because me as the author, mm. I can say they're not mistakes. And personally, in my own life, I don't really believe in regrets or mistakes because everything is sort of, you know, like one step at a time. Things mm. change and, and move as you grow older and you wouldn't, no one would be exactly where they are now without the things that happened mm. before. So that's sort of my own philosophy, but I had to be really careful about not projecting that onto Elle too hard. Mm. You know, she's still figuring that out for herself. So I definitely wanted her to be questioning that, you know, stereotypical Mm. heterosexual privileged narrative of her life, you know, Mm. the the hoops that you jump through to feel like you're an adult. And so her putting a bomb under all of that and, as you said, breaking up with her fiancé, moving out of home and being estranged from her family and quitting uni and all that stuff – I think that for Elle, she thinks when she's in her dark spaces, like when she's having bad a mm. bad day, she does think of them as mistakes at the beginning and certainly throughout the narrative. But I hope that towards the end, both Elle and readers can kind of see that, actually, I think I'm okay. Mm. I think that was the right thing to do. I think maybe putting a bomb under my life wasn't the worst thing in the world, even though it sucked at the time. You know, Mm. she can see the light, I suppose, at the end of the tunnel towards the end that she definitely can't see throughout. Yeah. Mm. Um, Look, Usually when I disagree with people, Amy, I I have the the safety of distance, but I I am going to disagree with you around this idea of mistakes Mm -hmm. because whilst I broadly uh, am in sync with your philosophy there, I think potentially the big mistake that, you are either uh, intentionally or, or um, surreptitiously showing the reader is mm. like maybe the mistake is living in someone else's story of you, mm. like someone else's story that, you know, I think at one point L says, I didn't know that when someone presents you with a ring, you can say something other than yes. Correct. Like all of this, all of this thing that the only mistake is it, you live someone else's story that they have for you. Yes, mm. that's true. And I agree. I agree with your disagreement, but I will counter. Listen, as Amy did, Amy did not jump the table. <laughs> I will, I will counter it a little bit by yeah. saying that that's true. That that mm. that is possibly the mistake was what she mm. did do, but she she breaks away from that. Mm. But it is the breaking away yeah. that she sees as the mistake, the possible mistake for a while mm. because she's like, wow, life was so much easier and simpler back then, even though maybe I wasn't that happy, but maybe mm. I want to go back to being a little bit not happy rather than being really, really miserable <laughs> and unsure of the future. So, yeah. 
It's a good yeah. point, though. Good counter argument. No, that's that's okay. I don't mind a dis, uh, don't mind a good disagreement. I realize I realized that was completely off the cuff. So this is <laughs> ooh, hello. This is yeah. We're we, the, we're getting into it, listeners. We are pulling back the curtain here. I I just <laughs> I just made up that question, and I realize I have potentially fluffed up my next question, which is kind of a parallel question. But sure. yeah, well, let's just do it, and you can say let's I feel like it. I've already answered that, Andrew. <laughs> um, no, this but this um, this way that Elle is living her life, she describes it as being on the edge of things, the feeling that she's not like properly in her life and that by contrast kick who lives in a van is or lux who lives at home seems they seem to be in their lives Mm. is moving from the edge to feeling like you're in your life like is that do you feel like that's a true journey or are we always actually in our life and sometimes we're just subject to a world that makes us feel estranged from ourselves that is an excellent question and it's very philosophical Mm. And I feel like the answer is kind of both. Mm. And I was about to answer on my own behalf, but I'm going to project it back to Elle for a second and say I think that for Elle, she hmm, she definitely feels on the edge, as you say, mm. because she's in this new kind of environment with these new people and she thinks everyone's cooler than her. I think that's a big thing for her. They, She feels like everyone's just got it going on, despite mm. the fact that they live in a van and don't have a job or live at home and quit their job and follow Elle around town, getting all the jobs that she gets, you know, Mm. um, in terms of Lux. But yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm so fascinated by this question and I feel like we could talk about this for an hour. I think that she's definitely, um, feeling on the edge, but participating in her life, of course. And we as readers can see that. But I think the point is that she doesn't feel like she's participating Mm. in life. So we can kind of look at her and go, yeah, but you're you're doing it. You're living it. You're making these decisions, good or bad. But she is is still in it. You're right. She's just kind of narrating it as she's living it. You know, she's analyzing it as she's living and driving herself a little bit up the wall because of it. You know, that overthinking, hypercritical nature of Elle. I want to set the scene a little bit more, Amy, and um, I really toyed with the idea of, you would be familiar with this yourself, the, the question around setting as character. Mm. Like it, it often, we often use that when we're looking at, say, something like noir, where um, uh, the mise-en-scene really uh, evokes something. I don't know if, if I'd go quite so far here, but there, it's really distinct. We've got, we're in Newcastle. It feels like it could be a fairly timeless Newcastle over the last 20 or so years. Um, we, you know, we've talked about Kick living in his van. He's a surfer. He oh, tries to be as close to the water as possible. Um, can you t- tell me a little bit about the, the, the scene and the mm. scenery and how that impacts the story? Mm. I always knew that I was going to write a novel set in Newcastle because it's where I grew up. It's mm. the place I know best and it's such a fascinating, amazing city that straddles city and small town. It's like Newcastle is the seventh largest city in Australia. It's the second largest city in New South Wales, but it has such a small time, small town vibe. And I think that everyone who lives there or grew up there or knows it well would testify to that. You know, you can't go anywhere without running into five people you know. Mm. It still very much has that kind of blue collar working class roots. Um, and yet 
as I kind of talk about in the book, it's changing and it's evolving, mm. it's growing. I think I read somewhere recently that Newcastle has the most artists per capita in Australia than anywhere else in Australia. And it's got such an amazing culture that's developing. It's even got like the foodie and the coffee culture and wonderful art and all that sort of stuff now. And so in regard to when this was set, that's an interesting question in itself because having started writing this 11 years ago, Mm. there have been drafts where I've tried to move the story along with the times and introduce things about Newcastle or even just things about the world and social media and platforms that we use like Uber instead of taxis and things like that Mm. um, as I was redrafting. And then eventually it just got confusing and difficult because the world is moving so fast, especially with social media. And I'm not on TikTok. So if I were to try and introduce TikTok as Mm. well as Instagram and Facebook, I feel like it would just be a bit naff. Mm. (laughs) And so eventually I decided, no, I just need to set this story in a year that I have decided is the year that this is set. No one else really needs to know that. But it's the year that I started writing the book. So 2012 is essentially unofficially when this story is set. And that is a really interesting time in Newcastle when it had been a couple of years since the Renew Newcastle project started where it was an artist-led initiative that saw some of the amazing old buildings in town turned into artist studios and rented out for a pittance to small businesses to help them grow. And it was just such an incredible time in Newcastle. Um, And also it was pre-important things that could be featured in the book if it was set a little bit further into the future, such Mm. as the Me Too movement and Mm. pre-Royal Commission and some of those really big, important things that would have impacted Elle's life as a character in Mm. Newcastle as well. So, yeah, that was a really interesting journey Mm. in the redrafting process, was deciding the, the, the exact moment in time that this story takes place. Yeah. And I feel like understanding the landscape is really important to understanding the scene. And Mm. Elle is very much a part of a scene, even if she feels she's on the edge of it, (laughs) which I'm going to, I want to go to a very particular part of it because I feel like if you're not in it, this, for me, it was, it was a little bit jarring. And what I'm, what I'm I'm going here, I want you to tell me about the religious element of Mistakes and Other Lovers. Sure. Like it's clear that Elle is attracted to the world that Mason Kick have come from. And it's a world where God comes with tattoos and a band shirt. <laughs> I got a sense, though, that this world also comes with its fair share of angst as mm-hmm. it tries to con- you know, navigate between conservative and cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is just something that I really wanted to explore out of my own fascination. I mm. find the world of evangelical religion so uh, seductive and also sinister and if we're going to go further, maybe even salacious and maybe even sexy for Elle. Like, she is attracted to that world because of some of the people that she meets who are in that world. And I think that what it then became, the whole religious element, was an extra way for Elle to be trying to figure out who she is and what she's doing and what she Mm. believes in. You know, she's friends with all of these people who... um, you know, throw their hands up to the Lord on Sundays, but also go and have Mm. sex with each other, but also preach no sex before marriage, Mm. but then also take drugs, but then also judge other people for doing so. And I just find the hypocrisy of that world and the hierarchies and the power imbalances, especially between characters like Elle and then um, Mace, the the youth pastor who she's sort of having an affair with, um, who's about to get married to someone else. Like I find Mm. it so 
I find it so interesting and so fascinating and there is definitely a subculture of that in Newcastle that I was exposed to mm. 11 years ago when I first started writing this book um, and I just find it juicy and I love it. It's really fascinating to me. Um, so unscripted question alert yeah. here um, because I, I really wanted to jump into ideas of masculinity. So that's coming. But I realized as you were talking there that I, I hadn't given proper thought to the way, I guess, this this sort of religious tension and this like enormous sense of participation. And, and to, to give readers a better sense of this, we have Mace. He's a youth pastor, but he's also, he fronts, uh, I think it's variously described as, you know, the most famous band in Newcastle during this story. Mm. And Kick, who is also a member of the church, mm-hmm. um, who... For, you know, he's the bass player because he couldn't cut it as the lead man of like the second most famous band, and it's like, does the does the the in the Venn diagram of religion and culture or mm. po- pop culture here, that space where they exist in the middle, does that really muddy the water of what morality is going to cut through? One hundred percent, and mm. that's what I think is so fascinating about mm. it because there is this pressure and this tension and one of my favorite scenes actually to write and that's in the book is when Lux and Kick and Elle are all talking about the church and Lux and Elle don't really believe and they didn't grow up particularly religious and they don't go to church but Kick does and he he, but he lives these two lives where part of him is like good church going boy on the weekends with his parents but then he is the first one to kind of expect BJs from all the women in his Mm. life you know Um, and they're having this conversation about the hypocrisy of it basically and Ellen Kick uh, Ellen Luck sorry are interrogating Kick about the fact that why can't we all just be nice to each other and do the right thing by each other Mm. but not have to believe in order to be saved and he was like because you're hurting yourselves but then it's just so it's just so interesting like that was are my- you aware you do an american accent when you 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 sort of do that persona did you no. did you not hear that <laughs> no that was you you the way you did kick there was just like you're hurting yourself oh my gosh that is so funny because i will confess a story here mm. one of the situations, one of the things in my life that inspired me to write this story was going to a Hillsong service in Mm. New York City with a friend in 2012. And it was in a nightclub and it was with the now disgraced pastor, Carl Lentz, um, who's become very famous with this whole takedown of Hillsong across the world. And um, I got to see him preaching on stage Mm. and I just thought that, and everyone was so attractive and so friendly and Mm. Um, I could really see the appeal of this world and I could understand why my friend who just moved to a different city across the other side of the world was attracted to it because it's like instant friendship, it's instant family, it's instant promise of all these things. But once you start to dig a little deeper and she was telling me about all this church gossip and who's sleeping with who and who gets to sit where because they're cool enough to sit there, etc., was just like mind-blowingly interesting to me. So maybe that's why I did an accidental American accent. (laughs) So, yeah, just that sort of uh, the pastoral, evangelical, like it just just hits better. I also watched a lot of YouTube um, over the years 
trying to capture the spirit of of mace and there's a lot of american evangelical sermons on youtube right i mean look, i'm i'm very much adjacent to the hillsong industrial complex and and the the sort of online interrogations that that come with that so mm-hmm. i th- am i thinking correctly the the guy you mentioned is he the one who would like he would would he ever like he gets if he doesn't preach, he at least gets photographed with his shirt off, and he's he's like super fit and super fit, yeah. super attractive. He I, was like best friends with Justin Bieber, famously. Um, right. He was the 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 pastor of the New York mm. City Hillsong for a long time, right. and then um, he was disgraced in I think it was 2020 because it turns out that he was having an affair and simultaneously posting about how much he loved his wife and his family all the time. So there's definitely, Mm. like, I took a lot of inspiration um, with the character of Mace Mm. living these double lives, even Kick living a bit of a double life. I think it's really interesting. What a perfect jumping off point then to (laughs) interrogate the masculinity in the novel. And I wanted to look at Mace, Kick, and also Elle's ex, Brendan. Mm. It's like when we meet Elle, Brendan is somewhat idealized mm. he is the doting fiance that was still somehow kind of lacking in spark importantly mm. he is not present this is all through Elle's reflection yes mason kick however they seem to be offering both more and less um treating l with i think i'm probably being generous by saying they treat her with disdain <laughs> while simultaneously keeping her close enough that she adores them yes how did you feel about the men in the novel like what how 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 did you feel about as they flowed from your pen, who they were emerging as? Yeah, it was really gross. It mm. actually was really gross to write, but also fun because I love writing dislike. Um, I love writing characters that my readers will definitely dislike. Like mm. I think unlikable characters are the most fun to write as an author. Um, but yeah, I think that for with the comparison of Brendan with. Um, who's her ex-fiancé with Kick and Mace, is really interesting. And I think that what I was trying to represent was Elle's almost self-punishment because she Mm. felt so guilty for breaking up with Brendan, who was her, you know, first big love and there was absolutely nothing wrong with him Mm. and she loved his family and he was, you know, all the wonderful things that she reflects on, but she just knew it wasn't right, but she just couldn't figure out why. Mm. And I think that when she hurts him essentially she feels so guilty that she Mm. kind of turns to the complete opposite of Brendan and what I was trying to represent with people like Mace and Kick is that opposite you know Brendan is Mm. in her memories at least very much there for her all the time and treats her really kindly and is just like a wonderful guy and then she turns to these people who, as you say, keep her just close enough to keep her interested mm. um, and throw her a bone every now and then, but essentially are not reliable at all and are not very nice and not very respectful. And I think that it's almost, I don't think she re- she really realizes this, but it's a form of self-punishment mm. that she eventually, you know, hopefully, or is on the way to pulling herself out of by the end. But also, as you say about Brendan, it is all in her memories. So I think Mm. by the end, she also does recognise the holes in what Brendan represented to her. Like, yes, he was kind and yes, he was respectful, but also there was an element of, you know, um, his life was more important than hers. His career was more important than hers. He just expected her to kind of go along with his plan for their lives without really thinking about maybe what she would want and Mm. her whole family 
And his family did that to her too, but she doesn't notice that mm. until later on. So I think that's a powerful growth for her. Yeah. This might be a little bit of repressed Catholic upbringing coming out here, <laughs> but it is really interesting to me that Elle is is so hell-bent on avoiding hurt for others. She mm. really she really doesn't want that. And but when it is it is of course inevitable. But there are times when people will be hurt. Everybody hurts. Thank you, Michael Stipe. Um <laughs> She immediately falls back into, I think you described it as self, self-flagellation. She is, which is a very, a, there's a lot of religious baggage in that mm-hmm, term. Mm-hmm. She very much, like she would fit well in a church <laughs> with all that guilt that they've got going. Like little, little, little guilt sample bag after every service. That is so true. And I think maybe that is part of why she is attracted enough to that world. It's not just about the men in it that she has a crush on or the, the people in it that she can see from her perspective, seem to have these really perfect, put-together, planned-out lives and don't have to interrogate their lives in the way that she is doing at the moment. Mm. Um, And I think it's that, but it's also a sense of belonging and a sense of connection that she's feeling is lacking in her life. And that's attractive when it comes to an institution like the church, especially the one that, you know, one of her good friends from work is taking her to. And she can see that, Oh yeah, there's something here possibly for me. You know, maybe it would my life would be so much easier if I did just accept the Lord into my life, but ultimately she she can't do it. She's mm. too she's too self-aware, I think, to let herself go in that way and too cynical and too um, you know, she interrogates the ideas mm. and the hypocrisy too much, so she can't belong <laughs> in the end. Yeah. Uh, about now, I actually want to give uh, just a, a polite nod to all of our religious listeners who are tuning out at the moment. Um, please send all your complaints to at Final Draft Two SER, um, because of course we are not we are not attacking your deity of choice here. Rather, the organised religions that you know fleece their proverbial flock. While I'm doing warnings uh, and apologies, I'll also just mention you know. The conversation may take a turn. In fact, literally this conversation is about to take a turn towards explicit material, if that is not what you want to hear right now. Uh, Because, Amy, I wanted to ask, there is a scene where Kick arrives at Elle's place. He's drunk. Shouldn't have been driving. Don't drive. Mm. Um, He proceeds to chide her for never giving him head. Mm. I probably should have put a language warning on this too. Um, So off to a great start, he then proceeds to shame her for being sex positive then devolves into tears when she takes off her top because he just couldn't go there. Kick's behaviour is a mix of kind of like old school male entitlement bullshit and confused piety. It's like if Andrew <laughs> Tate joined a monastery. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> like morali- morality around sex, it's a topic that every generation seems to want to claim as eternal. Like the way they do it is the way it's always been done despite these ever-shifting sands of what's permissible and what is permissive, where did you want mistakes to go into this space? Like, what did you want Mm. to say? It's interesting because I'm not sure that I thought about it really hard as I was Mm. writing it, but all of the things that you bring up are so fascinating. And part of me wants to be like, I think this is a conversation for an English major to have when they're (laughs) analysing the book themselves Um, because I didn't go into it with any kind of intention other Mm. than to try and represent what I see to be quite an authentic experience for a 20-something female character, like cis female character in this day and age. Um, And it's that battle, I think, between 
want like the confidence to be the confidence that she has in being sex positive and you know um having relationships with women as well as men for example but then also her lack of confidence around her entire life in general that is almost reflected back to her by kick's judgment mm. um but i like to think that a lot of what happens in those scenes is l just taking it on the chin you know it's other mm. it's other characters who are projecting their own insecurities and judgments onto her but inside i think that she knows that she's she's if we want to go good or bad side she's mm. on the good side you yeah. know she's she's the open minded one she's the um connected to herself enough to be confident with her choices in her relationships kind of one um and then on Kick's side, I think that that push-pull that he's experiencing is both a product of his upbringing mm. and society, but also just his own growth as a character and as a person. And I guess just hashtag toxic masculinity, <laughs> really, for Kick. When he slut-shames her in the baths as well, when they go swimming in midnight and... He's like, I wonder if we could have sex in the baths. And she's like, I've had sex in a pool before and, you know, whatever she says. Um, And he's like, oh, you slut. Mm. But he's the one who brought up the sex in the first place and who is constantly trying to entice her Mm. to have sexual relations with him but then never follow through. But then shames her for doing that with other people. So I just feel like this is the toxic behaviour of... Many young people who are not comfortable with themselves. I love that you brought that up because in in my notes, I actually had a note around that, but I didn't have a question that was sufficiently different to the question I've just asked (laughs) you. But I think it is there is some really powerful um, stuff in the novel about the way language is used Mm. and the way language is used to control like that. That's a fabulous scene because Elle's response is visceral. I, I, I think her immediate reflection is something along the lines of it's like I've been slapped. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a really powerful thing to kind of hold in your head, I mm. think, for for readers, and and think about the way language has that power. Mm. Um, I also want to just pick up on that thread of toxic masculinity because mm. Kick, Kick starts off interesting. He he's almost endearing in a hopeless kind of way, but. Mm. That scene is probably one of the worst of a few scenes, also including Mace in this, where mm. in a different book, perhaps in a different era or with a character with a different upbringing, um, like big, big fucking content warning listeners, like that's a rape scene. <laughs> yeah. Like that's a, that's, a, that's a rape scene, but for, you know, this thing that's going on in Kick's head. And it's really, it's really tough because like – Everything about what Kick does is manipulative. And for for Elle to walk out sort of feeling, and again, feeling bad about herself, mm-hmm. even though she has done everything she should and everything she can to protect herself in that scene, mm-hmm. that is that is tough as a reader to, to watch. Yeah. it's And it's tough to... <clears throat> it's tough to it's tough to write. Mm. It's a gross thing to put on the page, but I also mm. think it's important because mm. I... This is a a big call, but it's one I'm probably going to put out there confidently that I would say that there are very few women out there who have not experienced something like that mm. in their lives. And and 
And if not that kind of thing exactly, then just the shame, mm. being shamed yeah. <laughs> for being who they are, um, especially when it comes to their sexuality, is just, it's perennial and it's mm. yuck. And I felt like there needed to be those kind of uncomfortable scenes for it to be authentic to that, you know, young person experience. Mm. Mm. Or probably, like, I mean... This is very much set within sort of a milieu of mm. of life where, like, I'd love to say I, I get out to bands like I used to, but I don't. Um, so it's very, very, yeah, very much more like you're in your when you're in your twenties, you do that more. But I, I think there is something that speaks more generally um, yeah. for people because you know when people are you know in relationships, exploring relationships, these things don't stop happening just because you're not in mm. your 20s. So that's there's a power in that in Mistakes and Other Lovers mm. to, to speak more generally. Mm. Mm. And I, it's, it's interesting you say that because it's not just limited to that 20-something period. You're right, because I was reflecting the other day on that scene where Kick slut shames Elle and mm. she feels that visceral reaction, as you say. She mm. feels like she's been slapped and shamed and she knows instinctively and immediately that he's being unfair and hypocritical and she's raging about it but she doesn't really say anything. Mm. She thinks of some things that she could say in, in that scene and also the scene where he um, chides her for not giving him head or whatever. But I was thinking to myself, as a 34-year-old woman in a very different stage of my life to Elle, would I know what to say now in a situation like that? I know I'd be angry mm. and I know I would feel a lot of what she felt in that moment, but would I know exactly what to say to bring that person to their knees, essentially? And I'm not confident that I would. And I think that is the the lasting impact of m- misogyny and mm. toxic masculinity and like that, that, internal battle that we experience between wanting to be liked and, you know, and and I myself am an eternal people pleaser Um, and, yeah, wanting to be liked and wanting to be respected and and wanting to seem cool and chill and all those things, but then also wanting to call out the BS, Mm -hmm. you know. It's it's a battle every day. We flagged before sort of – if we had to locate a historic moment for this this novel, and as you were doing that, you you said it it precludes things like um, you know the the sort of the worldwide digital Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. Do, one of the one of the commentaries around things like Me Too, but it it goes alongside many of these global movements like Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. is that it has given a vocabulary to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. It has shown people who might have felt isolated that they're not alone, but also that there are words to describe this. There are words like toxic masculinity. There mm-hmm. are words like patriarchy and entitlement. Mm-hmm. Um, but just there, you reflected that you might not necessarily have access to them. In the moment. In the moment, exactly, mm. yeah. And, it's, I mean, Elle certainly doesn't because she is always feeling a little bit like one step behind everybody else and like she thinks a lot about what she says before she actually says it and sometimes the moment passes her by. But, yeah, it is definitely not lim- not limited to mm. to that time period in one's life. And maybe there are other characters in the book who would react differently mm. in that situation, like maybe Lux because she's a little bit fiercer in some ways but she's also wants to be the cool girl next door who kick loves so you know I think that um yeah it's just really interesting to put 
to put different characters in different situations and see how they react. But I also think that if Elle was existing in this world of mistakes and other lovers post Me Too movement, for example, she would at least probably be she'd have the vocabulary to talk about it, if not to kick or mace's face and Mm. confront them. She'd have the capacity to talk about it with her girlfriends or, you know, the people who really care about her and love her and probably experience those same things. But she doesn't have any of those conversations with any of those people in her life. She just keeps with her, you know, high school best friend Gab. She keeps Mm. everything secret for such a long time because Mm. she is ashamed of the life that she's living now and the people that she's surrounded herself with. Mm. And she probably knows that Gab wouldn't or doesn't really approve. And so she doesn't want to have those conversations. But maybe at a different time she would. Which I guess is an important point that the power of, say, when we talk about patriarchy, we talk about toxic masculinity is to isolate people. It is to take away voice. And so the converse power is to restore voice to to have those conversations mm. with people, even if you think they're not ready to listen, because almost certainly they are. I really wanted to, I was like, how are we going to turn this around? Because <laughs> I do not want people to think that Mistakes and, and Other Lovers is a, you know, like, do not read it in the dark of night. Don't don't read it in one of those long, dark tea times of the soul. <laughs> Before we get to um, the question that I'm going to ask, I'm glad you nodded to, to Lux there. I really, mm. I, as I looked at my questions, I thought, I haven't talked about Lux. I realized probably in my head, I was reading Lux as a foil to Elle because that's mm. how Elle saw her. Yep. They were they were always competing mm-hmm. because that's how Kick established the call it a friendship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but again, we can reflect that is potentially just another result of uh, all of these machinations we've been discussing. Yes, exactly. Mm. Lux was definitely one of my favorite characters to write. I think that she is so interesting and so nuanced. And I think that Earl is so fascinated by her in so many different ways that it was it was really fun to have her as this character that seems to be, like, as you say, seems to be just a cog in the kind of wheel or to jump analogies like a side of the love triangle. Um, but I think that Elle really comes to love her in a different way and want her to kind of be free of Kick's manipulations and then eventually realises that that's probably not going to happen and so has to leave Lux behind, you know. But I think that there was some possibly potential there for them, (laughs) you know, to at least be real friends. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, in the same way we could look at Jessie and we could say, you know, if we can't trust at heart the the honesty, the the good faith of these male characters that we're discussing, well, then how can we trust anything they tell us? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't mean there aren't friendships in the novel. And I did like <laughs> the emphasis on friendship throughout. At its best, it can carry us, but also it can undermine us if our friends have that ulterior agenda. So this is this is kind of my you know let's let's bring it back up. I'm not we. It's not a it's not a book you can spoil in the sense of I'm going to tell anyone who the killer is. But I don't want to sort of let people know where L ends. Mm. But I want to ask you, Amy, how do you feel about friends and their ability to sustain us? Yeah, I think that friendship is something that is the number one most important thing when you are in your twenties, especially and for L. If she, I, I hate to think where she would be if she didn't have someone like Gab waiting for her on the sidelines kind of thing. Um, what a wonderful friend. And 
I think that those that's the testament to true friendships in those difficult times in your life. Like I had my own, what I refer to as a gray year. So I stole my own term of gray year and gave it to Elle in the book. And it's interesting because at one point when I was doing a draft and I was trying to figure out why her high school best friend Gab sticks around when Elle is essentially being a pretty shit friend for a while. And I reached out to one of my best friends from high school who I'm still really close with today. And I said, hey, you know my grey year. <laughs> we both know what that means. Um, why did you stick around? Like, why did you, why were you sort of waiting for me at the end? Like, or what would, what would have it taken for you to give up on me or turn away from me? And she gave me some amazing insights and was also like, thank you so much for asking my advice on this redraft that you're doing of your book. I'm flattered, <laughs> um, which was cute. But yeah, she gave me a lot there. And so I think that friendship has always been something that is so important to me. It has sustained me throughout my entire life. Like, And that's not friendships separate to family. Like my siblings, for example, my younger brother and sister are my best friends, like the loves of my life as well um and i think that your friendships teach you so much Mm. and they they can also be a mirror you know if you like with Elle, she knows she's not being very a very good friend but she's also craving good friends Mm. and she's got that good friend she's got those good friends waiting there for her but when she put that bomb under her life she feels like she doesn't deserve them anymore. Mm. So she searches for something new and different. And I guess in that same way that I was saying before that Kick and Mace for Elle represent almost like the anti-Brendan, you know, she's self-flagellating and going Mm. for the bad guy, if you want to kind of put it in that context. And she's sort of done the same with friends as well. She's jumped in with a bunch of essentially pretty bad friends who don't really love or care about her or even know her very well. She's just you know, part of their little group for a short amount of time because she has a house where there are no parents and they can smoke weed in the backyard freely, you know. And um, so I think that's part of her her guilt. That's part of her punishment to herself. Mm. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I'm glad we could talk about friends and not not sugarcoat it because Mm. if Mistakes and Other Lovers teaches us or shows us anything, it is the way we keep our eyes open or when we close them to certain things, the consequences that can have. Mm. I'm speaking with Amy Lovett. We are discussing her novel, Mistakes and Other Lovers. We are in the studio, which is just fabulous. I love <laughs> it. I love it. I wish I wish all you listeners could out there could enjoy this moment of sharing a book together. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been really nice to, to chat mm. in real life with a copy of the book sitting right here. How surreal. That is it for this incredible conversation. Thank you so much again to Amy Lovett, who joined us on the show today. Amy's debut novel is Mistakes and Other Lovers. Now, you can catch catch this show on the radio. Wherever you are, like in around the world, you can actually tune into 2OCR.com on digital radio. Or you can listen to a long back catalogue here on the Final Draft podcast. We do record on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Wherever you are, thank you so much. I appreciate you for listening. I appreciate you for supporting Australian writing. You can stay in touch. You will find uh, you'll find Final Draft on like I can't keep up, so I'm going to say on many 
social media. Like we're not on threads yet, but you will find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'd love to hear what you're reading. I would love if you're enjoying the show, if you could give us a, uh, give us a rating, give us a shout out, just like literally grab someone's phone, type it in and subscribe for them because you know, they love books. <laughs> All right. Anyway, that's enough. That's enough of me sproiking. I am Andrew Popel. I'm going to be back with more incredible conversations with Australian authors, getting to the heart of their stories on final draft. But for now I'm heading off. I'm going to go read a book till next time. See you later.